you all can have a seat. Hey, so last Sunday was Easter Sunday. You know, it is the day where churches across the globe gather to celebrate the resurrection. It is the day where much is made of the empty tomb, where we celebrate how Christ defeated Satan, conquered uh, death, and, and made a way for the forgiveness of sins and for us to be adopted into the family of God. It is, without question, the most celebrated Sunday of the Christian faith, and rightfully so. But what about the next Sunday? What about today, right? Like, what, what do we do the week after? It's a week removed from the empty tomb, a week removed from a day that, that celebrates Christ's resurrection. What do we do now? What do we do this Sunday? What do we celebrate? What do we highlight? What do we emphasize? What do we rally around? What do we rejoice in? Because we, we, we do, like, we, we do believe that the tomb is still empty, right? We believe that Jesus still reigns, that he still lives. So what do we do in response to the victory that God has won. How do we respond to that? How do we reply to that? How do we now then really actually apply it into our lives? And so maybe that's some of the questions some of you are coming to this place with this morning because yes, last week was Easter and we celebrate. We're grateful for that, grateful for the hope. But, but maybe you come in thinking, so is Easter done? Because I, I maybe had hopes for Easter this year that it wouldn't just come and go, that, but that maybe somehow God would use this season to deepen your relationship with him or once more, maybe even help you discern God's call in your life or for what he wants to do in and through your life for the purposes of his kingdom. So maybe some of you are here this morning, and, and some, in some ways, maybe Easter is, I don't want to say an obstacle to your relationship with Jesus, but to starting one, but there's this, you could have this, do Christians just celebrate their faith on Christmas and Easter, or, or is there this celebration that they had the week before, is it something that really makes a daily impact in their life, or they just, yay, Easter, and then on to something else, and so you want to see Hey, is this something that, that, that makes a difference day in, day out? Is this something that really should be relevant to my life here and forevermore? So yes, Easter was last week, but what do we do now? Where do we go from here? How do we respond to this great thing that we believe that God has done? If you're with us the Sunday before Easter on Palm Sunday, I referenced Psalm 22, which is going to be our primary text this morning if you want to go ahead and be making your way there. But we referenced uh, Psalm 22 on Palm Sunday, and I talked about how this is a messianic psalm, that this is a psalm that's written by King David, uh, who was, uh, was king over Israel when he writes this. And the, the psalm that he writes, it, it describes this servant of God who's suffering. And he's suffering unjustly, uh, really suffering unjustly by, at the hands of very ruthless enemies. And so it's, it's a, it's so many parts, or really the first half of it, a very dark type of, type of a psalm. Now, this is getting into the details of it just a little bit. With, with David um, being king over Israel, he had times where he experienced hardship, to be sure. Times where he experienced obstacles. Times where he uh, had uh, difficult seasons of life, if you will. But nothing, nothing that, that would even come close to the type of turmoil that he describes in Psalm 22. So most scholars think that David is not writing from a place of personal reflection on literal hardship. That being said, there's some scholars that believe that David is using this figurative language to describe anguish and, and turmoil of his soul, uh, of his relationship with the Lord, and of just kind of uh, just describing that dark night of the soul type of, uh, of experience, if you will. And I think that's a legitimate position. I think that's a le- legitimate argument because I do believe that God can inspire David to write a psalm with this type of language that God then uses to point forward. 
because you see I referenced earlier that this was and is believed to be a messianic psalm because in Psalm 22, it's it's virtually a verse-by-verse description of the crucifixion account. And it's written over a thousand years before the time of Jesus, over a thousand years before Rome, over a thousand years before the the cross was used as an instrument of execution. And so many believe that God is inspiring David to write this psalm who is envisioning the suffering that the Christ, that the Messiah, that the one to be known as the son of David will will suffer through and will experience in his role in this way. And so uh, with that, the first 20 verses of this psalm, it is full of lament. It is full of lament and anguish and just heartache uh, and, and, and suffering. In fact, the first line of the psalm is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the psalm continues to describe the ridicule and the shame and, and just the, the, even the torture that, that is experienced by the servant of God who's going through this. But I will say this, while it is a psalm of lament, while, while, while it is, is, is a psalm in, in that way and you can hear that heartache, I also believe that throughout the psalm you can hear traces of hope. You can hear traces of, of, of believing that God is going to intervene because at its core it's still a prayer for God to move. It is a prayer for God to work. It is a prayer for God to rescue. And you can hear the prayer really come to the forefront about verse 19, 20, 21. He's asking for God, don't be far off. Come quick, come near, come close, rescue and save. And then we actually get the results of it. Verse 24, God intervenes. God responds. The, 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 uh, the servant declares that God has listened, that he has heard his cry for help. God has and will deliver him. And so there's this powerful and strong turning point in the psalm because it goes from lament and anguish to celebration, right? It, it, it goes from despair to hope. It goes from grief to joy. It goes from certain death to now life that God has brought about. And so remember, if we're looking at this through the vein, uh, through, the, through the filter of this being a messianic psalm, it's virtually a description of Easter. There's cross, there's tomb, and there's resurrection, There's cross and there's tomb, what looks like defeat, and then God ushers in victory. And so what you have in the very end of this psalm, verses 25 through 31, you have the response of the servant to God's victory that he has brought about. And so I think it's a a fitting psalm for us because as this psalm shows the response of the servant to God's victory, and as we believe this is a psalm about Christ, in so many ways this shows Jesus' response uh, to the victory, to the Easter victory. And I believe that it is a, a great text for us to look in as we perhaps ask this question, what's next? Where do we go from here? Because what this psalm does for us, it shows and gives us a pattern to follow for how do we respond when we see God's demonstration of his power, of his might, of his redemption, and of his victory. So we're going to look and we're going to see not only how Christ responds, but as he is the one who is the head of the church and, and, and gives a pattern for us, I believe this can speak wisdom into us to how we too can respond to, to both to Easter and to all the different ways that we see God work, that we see God move, that we see him put on display, his power and his might. So let's check it out. Psalm 22, Psalm 22, 25 through 31 is our primary text. Hopefully uh, you've been able to make your way there. Do you need me to filibuster? Go a little bit longer. I can talk about something until you get there. No, Psalm 22 uh, 25, let's have at it. We're going to do work with this text. Really going to settle in and, and pick it, pick it up, uh, unpack it a verse at a time. All sorts of tongue twisters. Psalm 22, verse 25. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. From you comes the theme of my praise. All right, so this is on the, on the flip side. There was lament, God's moved, 
victory, and now what happens? From you comes the, the theme of my praise. First thing we do when we see God work, when we see God, God's victory, is we praise him for it. You might say, David, that seems like a no-brainer. That seems like, like obviously, like if, if God does something in my life, then, then yes, I'm going to praise him for it. But here's the thing. I think so many times we can have an ungrateful heart to where it's not just, like I don't even think we're a what have you done for me lately, God. I think we're, God, what are you going to do next? Right, like we're, it's just, uh, we're, we're not even looking to see what he's done. It's just, what, what are you gonna do now? What are you gonna do next? And when we don't stop and pause and, and look and reflect on how God has worked, on how God has moved, on how God has blessed, then we're gonna miss out on this, what should be a no-brainer, that we stop and we praise him for who he is and for what he's done, that we express our gratitude and our adoration to him. First and foremost, we worship, we praise. And in response to Easter, we praise him for the resurrection and we continue to praise him for the victory that he has won. But this verse uh, also to me has a, has a strong instruction in it. And it's the first two words where it says, from you comes the theme of my praise. From you comes the theme of my praise. So this lets us know that how we praise the Lord, what we praise him for, all of this comes from God. And that's important for us because if it doesn't come from God, then we would be left to be trying to come up with this. How are we going to worship him? How are we going to praise him? What are we going to praise him for? And, and, and humans, broken, fallen, sinful humanity, we are really good at fashioning gods in the image of ourselves. And so if we were to come up with themes of praise of how we're going to praise the Lord, then I would, I would have a sneaking suspicion that a lot of times that worship would look like self-worship. And so what we have in this is, okay, we're going to praise the Lord and we're going to let him show us how to praise him. From you comes the theme of my praise. So we praise him. He's the origin. He's the source of our praise. And he does this. He tells us the themes of his praise through his word and through how that reveals his character, his nature, his attributes, and even his redemptive works. And so uh, our, our praise is from him, comes from the Lord, and it's inspired, driven, motivated by who he is and, and what he's done. So from you comes the theme of my praise, theme of my praise in the great assembly. And then it continues, before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. So it, it continues to, to show the servant's response, Christ's response to, to the victory, to the Easter victory. He's going to praise the Lord and he's going to continue to fulfill the vows that he has made to his heavenly father. And, if you, and throughout Christ's life, he's consistently uh, showing that his one desire, his one aim, his one mission in life is to glorify his Father. And he's going to do that through fulfilling his vows, through faithfulness. And so when we're trying to answer this question, how do we respond? How do we respond to victory? We say first and foremost through praise and through obedience. Through obedience and faithfulness. Because this is what Christ has done. Christ has, throughout his life, he glorified his Father through his life, death, and resurrection. And, and even glorified his Father by obeying his Father's plan, which included the cross. Right? The, the, the place where he would be the sacrificial death to make a way for the restoration uh, of God's family. And so in this, Jesus is, is showing that he is going to uh, fulfill his vows to glorify his Father, to obey his Father's plan. And as such, when he, when he obeys his Father's plan, uh, Ephesians 2.7 has a really powerful description of it. It says, when, uh, it says of this, that when Jesus does this act or makes this sacrifice, it shows the incomparable riches of his grace and uh, expressed to us in his kindness in his Son, Christ Jesus. And so when Jesus... Um, Praise, so we're, we're tracking through his, through his response to this. He's going to praise the Lord. He's going to fulfill the vows uh, to his father. He's going to enact his father's plan. 
uh, for uh, forgiveness. And when he's doing all this, it's showing uh, the riches of God's kindness of his grace and of his mercy helping all to glorify him and and when this happens it's drawing us to praise uh to praise the lord and so what we're what you see in this is the suffering servant or christ praising uh, his father who is the one who actually enables the praise and is also he is praised or worshiped through faithfulness and obedience that got a little muddy Everybody tracking with me on that? Like, we, we, our first response, worship. Second, second step is one of obedience, because we're seeing this is how Christ is doing this. He's worshiping his Father. He's obeying, staying faithful to his vows. And we do this not out of drudgery. We do this not out of guilt. We do this because it's, it, it alone is, is, is what satisfies the soul. And we see uh, these next few verses really give us a, a picture of the kingdom of God. And they give us a picture of what the gospel accomplishes in our lives. And what, as such, it gives us a picture of what Christ has accomplished for us. Look at verse 26. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. So because Christ worships in response, because Christ is obedient to his Father's plan, because Christ has accomplished all that God set out to him, when we trust in him, when we place our faith in him, we are satisfied and satisfied to the full. This gives us a picture of the wholeness of the the gospel. It gives us a picture of the wholeness and the rest that comes in trusting in the work that God has done on our behalf. Uh, John 10.10 10 is a verse that we quote a lot at Grace City. It's, it's, uh, Jesus says of himself, I've come that you might have life and have life to the full. We're satisfied in him and in the work that he has done. So much so that the psalmist even uses this imagery of the poor, right? The, the poor, those that, that know what it's like to look for their next meal, that are looking for their next source of income, that live in this constant insecurity. It, it says even the poor will know peace, will know wholeness. We'll know what it is to be satisfied because they discover that what aches, what, hun- what causes hunger of the soul, what satisfies all that is found in the gospel. It's how life-giving and how good the work of the Lord is because those who seek him will find him, will know him, will worship him, and will be with him forever, eternally satisfied. That's what Christ has done. He's praised his Father, been obedient to the Father's plan, made a way for us to find wholeness, satisfaction, forgiveness, forgiveness in the work that he's done and in the kingdom of God. And as that is the definitive work, definitive redemptive work for really all of creation, it is news that should be told to all of creation. That's where the text goes because you're going to see how expansive this news is and really how expansive Christ's ministry is that he's wanting all to know and recognize and see and celebrate what God has done in and through uh, the plan of Christ. Verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over all the nations. I think you see a couple things in this text. Um, One, again, you see how far and expansive the gospel message is, right? Like for all the, like Christ is calling all the nations in. He's going to help them all see the glory of the Lord. So that means this good news is not for one people group, not for one nation, not for one ethnicity, 
not for one race, not for, not for one type of person. This is for any and for all to know and hear. And Christ is drawing all into the kingdom of God. So you, you see that in this text. It also shows the amount of power that Christ has. It shows, shows the amount of power and authority that is, that is in him, uh, that God has given to him, that is in uh, just the, the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You see the amount of power that is entrusted in and unto God because all authority resides under him. And, and so with that, and I could be wrong on this, but I'm still going to give it to you. Uh, I, I think that these two verses could in some ways be a critique on unjust abuses of power. Because remember, this is that messianic psalm. So it's, it's, we see a picture of the cross. Who did the cross? Rome. Rome and the Roman Empire. And we see their power and their might in the cross and, and, and that crucifixion. And so as this has been a, a psalm of lament, one that's suffering unjustly at those hands, and then God delivers and God redeems and God restores, I think this is showing uh, that, that, hey, one day all corrupt, broken abuses of power, they too will be subjugated to the good holy, pleasing, righteous power and authority that is seated in God and God alone. And, and so I, I, I think it could be a critique there. And that could raise the question as well, well, if God has complete and total authority, complete and total dominion, are we right to trust him with it? Because we see over and over and again um, abuses of that power. Well, throughout his psalm, he has shown us how much he loves, how much grace, how much mercy that he has given in that he sent his son to suffer in this way to redeem us from our sins, to accomplish for us our adoption in the family of God. So he's, it's, what does that do? It shows us, again, the incomparable riches of his grace and shows to us his kindness, that he is worthy to be trusted, worthy to be trusted with this much power and authority. And so we, we see as this text continues to unfold, it's good news for all nations, it's good news for all the world. And then it talks about how it's good news for, for any and all, regardless of kind of their economic background. Look at verse 29. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. So everyone, the wealthiest of all, and those who can't support themselves, and everyone in between, when they trust, when, when they trust in the Lord, what happens? They feast and they worship in his presence. This is good news for any and for all, regardless of economic status, regardless of background, regardless of cultural context. The gospel is bringing life to all those who trust in him and what Jesus has done for them. So you're seeing a hope that transcends nations, that transcends status, and I believe it's even a hope that transcends generations. Look at this, verse 30. Posterity will serve him Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. It says posterity will serve him. Um, I had to look up that word. I had no clue what it meant. Um, so maybe some of you are, not maybe, a lot of you are smarter than me. So you might understand exactly what that is. Some of you might be like, thank you for looking it up, David. Please tell us what it means. I will. Uh, it, it says all future generations is what that means. All future generations. And so there's a little bit of poetry there. All future generations will serve him. All future generations will be told about the Lord. Um, we'll go old school with this first. And then I want to talk about what kind of a, an impact for, with this for us now. Think about David when he's writing this. 
Like when God's inspiring David to, to write this text, uh, like I'll, I imagine how hope-filled this must have been for him because he's, he's king over Israel. And if you don't know Israel's history, Israel had this pattern where it seemed like one generation when no one loved the Lord and then the next one would just be like, who's the Lord? You know, like, like the next generation would just completely forget him and, and forget the story and they, they would chase after false gods. And so you see this consistent lack of consistency in Israel, where there's one generation that that was loved and devoted and faithful to the Lord, and the next generation didn't, and just completely abandoned him. And yet here, David is is getting, is, is having this interaction with the Lord. The Lord's inspiring David, telling him, hey, the hope of the gospel, the hope of what Christ has, will do and is doing, the hope of what I'm doing is going to be so profound, so life-altering, so life-giving that generation after generation after generation is going to know and see and experience this for themselves, and they're going to be the ones to further this along. You don't have to think that it's going to be gone, that one day somehow it's going to be wiped from the face of this earth. No, it's going to go from generation to generation to generation. That's not saying that everybody in the generation is going to know it, but it's going to say that people within each generation is going to respond to the truth of who Christ is, and they will be the messengers to continue to spread the hope of the gospel. And what's incredible to me in this is that, um, again, I think this this is looking forward to the ministry of the church that is going to help this uh, continue to go on, help this work continue to happen. And so it's, it's each generation declaring the deliverance, the rescue, and the redemption that the Lord uh, has, has accomplished for them. And so, but what is that? As they're, as they're telling the story of what Christ has done, as they're declaring that he has done it, that's mission. That's, that's being about the mission of, of the kingdom of God. And so if we're putting all this together, that we've been working on all the way through, like when we, when we see God's victory, or we see God's power, or, 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 we're, or we're, we're responding to Easter, how do we respond? We respond in praise, we respond in obedience, and we respond in mission. We respond in praise, we respond in obedience, and we respond in mission. There's, there's praise because of who he is and what he's done. There's praise because we see the story of, of the empty tomb, right? We see the story. So he's given us the theme of his praise. There's obedience because, because of his goodness and his faithfulness to us. We want to fuel into what he's doing. We want to obey his words because they're good and they're right in our life. And there's mission because we want to tell all about his power and his might and his authority. But we want to tell all about his victory over sin and how in him and in him alone the soul is satisfied. So you have the victory of God through his son. It's good news for all the earth, good news for all the generations, and it is something that we are to continue to celebrate over and over and over again, declaring that he has done it. And so that's why there's, there's so, many, so many different aspects of the psalm that are powerful to me. Yes, it's prophetic about Jesus, you know, written a thousand years before describing what he would do and what he would accomplish in, in, in his ministry. But again, I, I do think this is a prophetic word for the church. I think it's a prophetic word for you and for me as we've gathered as a church. Because not only have we seen, and we kind of hit on the ministry of the generation to generation, not only to see the existence, the power, and the ministry of the church, but this also means that every time we gather, okay, every time we come inside these walls, every time I stand up in front of you and say, hey, good morning, welcome to Grace City. 
Every time anybody says, hey, welcome, come in this place. Every time we gather to worship, to, to, to express our praise to him. Every time we open his text to be trained by him, to be taught by him. Every time we call one another to trust and obedience. Every time we gather as a church, we are putting on display again and again God's faithfulness to his word because he has promised that we would do such a thing. Do you realize that? That's why it's not a small thing that we gather as a church because when we do, we show time and time again that God's word is faithful, that it is true, that it is coming to fruition daily. So just gathering together is a way where we see God's grace and that he's given us this gift that is the church. And he's, we also see that every time we gather, it's another example of God's word being fulfilled. And I, and I do believe, we're, we're talking about Easter something. I believe Easter, powerful demonstration of this, is it not? Powerful demonstration. Because like, Easter gives us, gives us an example of the breadth and width and reach of the global church. I mean, we see it all over. Like the, I don't know if you did this. This could just be a preacher thing. But like last Sunday after Easter, I, I'm, I'm hitting social media and I'm looking just to kind of see what's happening. So many folks were posting pictures of uh, you know, Happy Easter and it was a picture from their church. And, and that wasn't just having a great city. I saw pictures from Bellwether, Redeemer, First Jackson, Pine Lake, Broadmoor. I saw, saw them from, from so many different places all across the community. And it was a reminder, we are not alone. We're not the only church, not by a long shot. I mean, we know this, right? But to be able to see that, you say, okay, we see a family of churches that are committed to, to articulating the hope of the gospel to the city of Jackson. Once more, you know, there, you can look and see posts from churches all across the South, all across the nation, even all across the globe. And what are they doing? They're gathering, celebrating the same truth that Christ has conquered the grave. It shows all the nations. All the nations praising him. And his churches from every socioeconomic background as well. And so with that, I think you get just a glimpse of the kingdom of God because you have all that are praising and worshiping and expressing their adoration of the king of kings for who he is and for what he's done. It is a day where we rejoice over the sins that are forgiven and that the soul is completely satisfied. And it's a day where we respond and celebrate the victory that God has won on our behalf. And so I absolutely believe that Easter is one way that you see this text demonstrated and enacted. But at the start of this, I said, what do you do the Sunday after? And I think this is a text that's still binding on us, right? I think this is a text we're called to continue to enact week in and week out because this is how we respond to God's victory in our life, through praise, through obedience, and through mission. And I I know that's like three small points, and it's probably points that you hear all, you know, a gajillion different sermons. But know this, that is not a small thing to engage in. That is not a small thing to engage in because here's the deal. When Grace City does this as a church, Grace City, catch this, takes its place in the eternal chorus of praise to Christ for who he is and what he's done. And we take our place in the ongoing mission of the kingdom of God. Can I say that any bigger? Like, do do you know that that's what you're a part of when we gather? You are part of an eternal course of praise that started in eternity past and will go to eternity future. We take our place in that eternal course of praise. 
praising Christ for who he is and for what he's done. And we take our place in the ongoing mission of his kingdom, declaring to all nations, declaring to all people groups, declaring to everyone from every socioeconomic status of who he is and what he's done and the hope therein. And, and so like that's, that's the hope of us, right? That we wanna, we wanna be, that's the hope for us, that we wanna be a church that enacts this, that puts this in a place, that anytime we open those doors, people from every background, every context, every race, every ethnicity, every economic level can know that they can come in and have a place and have a home at Grace City. And look, let me say this, we're a long way from that. Can we just, just say, like, I'm, I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to throw, I'm not trying to cultivate guilt, I'm not trying to, cult, like, we're, we're just a long way from that. But we want to be. And it's not just lip service, right? This is a prayer of mine, of, of our elder team, of our church staff, that we would be a church that constantly positions ourselves to express the hope of the gospel in word and in deed in such a way to where people from every background and context can know that they can come here because of what Christ has done for them. And they can be adopted and find a place in the family of God and find a church home here at Grace City. And so I, I think that's, one, one way that we can see the hope of, of Easter, one way that we can, can continue to live out the hope of Easter is that we respond in praise and, and, and uh, obedience and mission and do it in such a way to where we're following the example that Christ has given us, spreading the hope of the gospel, a hope that transcends nations, backgrounds, and a hope that even transcends generations. We'd be a church that would, would want to pour into the next generation as well. And so I, I think there's so many different ways that we as a church can live this out and embody this. And it's a way that we respond to God's mission. It's a way that we respond to God's victory. It's a way that we proclaim his righteousness and say, again and again, he has done it. Also think it's a way that you as an individual can respond to the hope of Easter. I think it's a way that you can respond because here's the deal, whether you realize it or not, whether you realize it or not, in your class, in your community, in your family, on this ball field, wherever he has placed you, you have been invited and called to join in the eternal generational praise that is happening and invited to take your place in the ongoing mission of his kingdom. Okay, and maybe for some of you, the first step is, is responding to that invitation. That first step is for you to taste and see that the grace that he has given is good, that Christ is the one that you can trust with your sin, that he has made a way for your sins to be forgiven, for you to be restored and redeemed in the family of God. And I'm telling you that when you do, you'll begin to see so many of these verses come alive for you. Christ really did say, I've come that you might have life and have life to the full. You can see and know and experience that. You can know the hope of 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so it's not your standing before the Lord, it's Christ standing before the Lord on your behalf. Okay, you can know that and see that and trust in that and rest in that and, and know that that's what's made a way for you to be a part of the kingdom of God. And then you can continue to hear these words and commands of God that call us to be on mission for him, that calls us to be the ones to declare the hope of what he's done. And that is something that you can do right where you are right now, again, in your class, in your community, on the ball field. He has placed you right there. What it is, is he has given you a ministry. He has given you a ministry. I had a conversation with one of you a few weeks ago, and he said, David, it, it, it seems crazy to me to say it, but he really has given me a ministry with the, the, this workout class. And I was talking with him, and I was like, oh, well, yes, it does seem crazy that God would give us this ministry because we're all broken and jacked up and sinful people, right? But, he's, but, I mean, how, but at the same time, he's, he's redeemed us. 
He's, he's shown us his grace. He's shown us his love. He's shown us his, we should be the ones speaking to that, right? We have this treasure in Georgia Clay. We should be the ones expressing this and, and calling other people to, to, to do the same. Once more, his word tells us that he is going to give us ministry. So in some ways, we should expect that to be there. And so the, the thing that I have for you, if you're a follower of Christ, if you believe that he has saved you from your sins and that because of what he's done, you are in the family of God, you have a ministry. The question is whether or not you realize it and how well are you stewarding it. You have a ministry. And, it's, and, and when you br- embrace it and when you step into it, again, you are joining the eternal course of praise and you are stepping into the ongoing mission of the kingdom of God. And it's a way that we respond to the hope of Easter because we continue to show and point uh, to who he is and what he's done. It's a way that we praise him it's a way that we praise him. Because what it is, in, in this way, he's actually the source of our praise. He's the reason for our praise. He's the cause of our obedience. And he's the one we co-labor with, showing and telling all the hope of his kingdom. And so again, it's a way you take your place among the eternal course of praise, and you find your place among the ongoing mission of the kingdom of God. So just, just imagine, imagine church. Imagine for one moment, the change that would come to your life of faith. Imagine the joy that would come. Um, imagine the, the sense of urgency. Imagine the, the, the sense of boldness and even the sense of humility that would come in recognizing, okay, it's called, he's placed me to fuel into this. Imagine this, the sense of, aha, this is what it's about. It's about you and you've made a way for me to fuel into what you are doing in this world. Just imagine that change that might come to your life and to your faith. If we begin to see this pattern that Christ has given to us of responding to God's victory in our life. One of praise, one of obedience, one of mission. Imagine the change that would come to our community uh, uh, here at the church. Imagine the change that would happen to our church if we embrace this as a prophetic word about our place and mission in the city of Jackson at this time and at this place. I think it's a way that, that we as individuals and we as a church can continue to proclaim his righteousness, declaring to people yet unborn that he has done it. He has conquered the grave. He has risen. He has defeated sin. He has made a way for our adoption in the family of God. He has made a way for us to have life and life to the full. He really has done it. It's a way that we join the eternal course of praise and fuel in to the ongoing mission of the kingdom of God.